0: Hey, Typology Tribe, Ian Cron here at the home of Anthony Skinner, my producer, engineer, my friend, yes, my
1: muse, my spirit animal. (laughs) Hey, just happy to be here with my brother, the one and only Ian Cron.
0: (laughs) We are here for another episode of Looking at Life Through the Lens of the Enneagram, my friends, and uh, just... Just talking about the mystery of the human personality, and speaking mm. of the mystery of the human personality, Anthony, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Ian? Well, I'm in between trips, but yes. but, but feeling good. I uh, yeah, just was in Indianapolis last weekend, and guess what, I'm going back again for a whole different one this weekend to Evansville.
1: You and I are jetting all over the place these days. You were in California. I was just in California. Just got back. Yep, yeah, out there for a week. You had your photo shoot. Yeah, I had. A- <laughs> <laughs> Had my photo shoot, did a little songwriting yeah. in LA and up in, in NorCal and did my photo shoot Hold in LA. Up. I have to
0: do my FM radio voice <laughs> when I say that.
1: You did your photo shoot? You did your photo shoot. In the desert. Yeah. Oh so tell me about your travels. So yeah, I mean well okay, so traveling for me.
0: Uh, do you have trouble packing? I have a terrible time packing, even well, for short trips. And okay. I,
1: I mean, I travel all the time, and it still takes me like all day to pack. So I felt ridiculous on this trip because I could have packed in a duffel bag, but I had two huge suitcases and a hat case. You had a hat case. I had a hat case with three fedoras in it for okay, my photo shoot. For my photo shoot.
0: <laughs> I mean, dude, we live in Nashville, Tennessee, where every other person is a guitar player, or but a songwriter, or a photographer
1: a yes, doing design. No, I had to go to L. I love LA. Ah, a little Randy Newman. Newman. All right, I got that. Okay, so Ian, what is your greatest challenge when you're packing? I'll tell you what I have trouble packing. Okay. Books. Because I there you. are so I am many books. So with you. Right? And it's I hate like Kindle. People pick up my backpack and they go, What the I know. People pick I've up my Kindle like and do that. Books in my- <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank God for my iPad because it's changed my life. But I still right. have books in my. Well, I don't
0: right. like I don't like Kindle, so I have to carry
1: book books. Yeah, right? Yeah.
0: So what are you reading right now? What have you been taking on trips?
1: What's, what's been What's been next to your hotel b- bed? Yeah, So I had two books with me on this trip. One was Johnny Cash, "Forever mm-hmm. Words: mm-hmm. The Unknown Poems." Uh, another was "Every Riven Thing," Christian oh. Wiman. <sighs> great who i heard an amazing interview on um Christy P- tippett yes on Chris, being yes uh, and then got a chance to meet him with you in uh connecticut yeah. afterwards so
0: well i think one of our truly our finest american living living american poets oh
1: what a gift and such a rare talent
0: yeah a frightening talent every riven thing beautiful work of poetry in his book my my uh my bright abyss Oh yeah. That year I thought was the finest piece of spiritual writing I'd read in, in
1: years and years and years. My my bright abyss. And what a voice. When, he has a special ownership in even other people's poems when he reads them. There's oh, something
0: Oh yeah. I mean, that, I mean that that's the real deal right there, oh, no, That's uh that's that's the that's all that's my all word. in.
1: So great. So tell me what you're reading.
0: Yeah, I'm reading one book that would surprise you. Okay. Okay, but I've loved it. It's written by a guy that it was the head of the FBI's International, the guy who negotiates the release of people who have been kidnapped hostages. or hostages. And st- he's a hostage negotiator. His oh. name is Chris Voss, and it's called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And oh. it was just pretty riveting. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's like totally I'm, not in my lane, but I love right.
1: it. And it's stories from his uh, experiences it, or what? It
0: is, but it's also how do you negotiate? Part of the premise of the book is that every day you're negotiating for hostages in your mm. life. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, you're negotiating all day long. Uh, and sometimes with with high, you know, a lot of yes, consequences lot involved if it doesn't go I your love way. That. right, yeah. lots, lots of stakes. So wow. I found it so fascinating. Yeah. And uh, there was an interview with him on Barnum uh, mm-hmm. Street's podcast, and it's he was fantastic on it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, today on the show uh, we have a guy coming on. He's a good friend of mine. I'm proud to say, uh, who who wrote a book years ago. That whether you liked it or not doesn't matter. It arguably, left a seismic impression um, on the planet, you know, but particularly in the in the realm of uh, spirituality, right? Wow. Uh, his name is Paul Young. He wrote oh, yeah. he wrote The Shack, and Paul you'll hear in this show is a remarkable human
1: being. I've met him a few times, heard him speak a few times. Yeah, Draw-jopping every time.
0: Yeah. Well, I have to say, you know, it doesn't matter whether, you you know, you have some like theological issues with, you know, so what, you know, that's not the point. The point is is that this is a human being Mm. whose heart and soul are fascinating Mm. and are also enriching I, no, I have it's a special here. place of affection on Harper Paul and I, I really don't want to waste anybody's time Let's uh, do it. he's got a bunch of other novels you know the novel Eve and then crossroads and here's the big one I want people to know about and he just wrote a book that that uh, uh, we're gonna talk about uh, on the episode called lies we believe about God and that that came wow. out uh, this past year maybe just last year maybe in 2017 oh. that's very very good He's a dear soul and um I, I do i have a i have a little room in my heart the paul young room that, that, that,
1: that, <laughs> that he, so he gets a
0: special place in the mansion of my heart yeah and uh i i just know people are going to love the show and here's the deal this is a two-part podcast and during this show he and I, he 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 comes into the show not knowing his number. Okay. He, he's not sure if he's a nine or a seven. And so during the show, we actually start working our way toward figuring it out on the basis of all the conversation we're having. We actually get into it. We actually nail it in the second uh, episode uh, of this two-part series. So you have
1: to listen through the first. Oh yeah, you to totally do. And,
0: but but everything that gets covered. I mean, every time he opens his mouth, well, you'll see. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Let's get to it, and my friends, Anthony Skinner, all my friends out there. This is. Paul Young, author of The Shack, more importantly, my friend. My friend, Paul Young, welcome to Typology.
2: Ian, it's so good to see you. I missed you since we went fishing.
0: I know. Back in July, we... We're in Montana. What was the name of the on well, the bighorn, right? Is that the
2: uh yeah, the bighorn. Yep. The bighorn. Yep. First time I've ever fly fished in my life.
0: Yeah, and by the way, as I recall, you caught more fish than I did. How many how many did you catch, you remember? More than you. Yeah, and, that's uh, all that
2: mattered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I also caught a big brown on my first cast ever.
0: Yeah, and that's hard because there's not a lot of browns in that river. They're all rainbows, right? Uh huh. Uh huh.
2: So it was awesome. It was like, all right, got me hooked right there. No pun intended.
0: You know that I'm an Enneagram 4 and that our deadly sin is envy, don't you?
2: (laughs) But, you know, the whole point of knowing your Enneagram is so that you can deal with it. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you for affording me that opportunity.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, backhanded grace is sometimes the best kind. (laughs) And we got to room together. Yes, we did. And and I really like you just, you know. Well, just in case you did,
0: the feeling is mutual. You're a you're a kindred spirit, and uh, our mutual friend uh, Michael Kusick, who's been on the on the on our podcast uh, before, he told me that he was not so long ago at a Richard Rohr uh, hosted conference in New Mexico, at which you gave one of the plenary talks, and he just said to me, "From the moment Paul opened his mouth until the end, I wept." Mm. What well, on he's earth a did tem- you talk about? He's a, what a tender heart. He is. Well, what did you talk about that was I
2: don't know. <laughs> uh <laughs> In fact, that's another thing you told me. He said, I don't think Paul knows what he's gonna say until he stands up. I don't. And even then I'm kind of like, All right, see where this goes. I I'm for the last ten years, even when I thought I knew what I was gonna talk about, I was almost always wrong. Really? And uh yeah, yep. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I'm finally at a place where I'm comfortable enough in my own skin that I don't have to, you know, one, plan it out. And two, I get to trust, because that's been my journey anyway, is learning right. how to trust. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I trust that, you know, the Holy Spirit knows who's there. And I don't have to have that figured out. And so it changes every single time. It's different. Um, wow. That was a remarkable conference, because it was such an, a mix of people— from those who are disengaged from religious institutions to a lot of coming from the Catholic side and, and a bunch of uh, sort of post-evangelical evangelicals and uh, modern evangelical. Um, and um, so it was, it was great. And it was on the Trinity. So it was – and you know what? Here's the cool thing. I don't think that the Catholics have ever really seen a Protestant storyteller, you know? No. Wow. So what?
0: how do you think that affected them?
2: Well, it, um, Cynthia Bourgeau, who was one of the speakers, yep. who is a fantastic human being, she comes up afterwards. She's all excited. You know how she is. She's like mm-hmm. a child in an elderly woman's body. And she's like, Paul, Paul, this is like a new art form. <laughs> oh <laughs> because I didn't sit behind a desk, right? Yeah. So I was I was moving chairs around, and I was talking, and I was, uh, whatever, telling stories. And it was it wasn't what they were used to. So I think sometimes... When somebody comes in from outside your history and perspective, it allows you to hear things differently. Mm. And, uh, and I think it was just partly timing and partly that um, it, it, it worked. It was beautiful. And on so many different levels, it was beautiful. But it was I, a great conference.
0: You know, I, um, one of the things that I uh, so appreciate about you is, number one, your gift for holding space. Which I think is like one of the most important things uh, a, a speaker can do, especially when they're sharing from deeply from their own hearts, mm. yeah, to hold the space in a way that people feel safe and they trust you very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, secondly, obviously, storytelling. I mean, it, you know, Richard, who I ad- adore as a human being, oh, a de- great debt of gratitude, love him personally. He's not a storyteller. No, I mean, he's, it's not. How, he's it's not, not what he does. I mean, nope. you know, it's not his, his charisma. It, so uh, you know, yours is, I've seen you speak a couple of times and yeah, the story part, all of the vast majority of which are true. I mean, they're not fable, uh, are incredibly powerful. So anyway, that's I, your
2: I love. I love your use of holding space because that's how I see good creative work. Um, that good creative work, uh, creates more space than it uses. And, um, and I think fiction does that in a way that nonfiction can't, because a lot of times nonfiction's intent is to actually reduce space, not to, not to create or open it up, but fiction just open. And and this is true with art of any sort, really, if it's good art and not propaganda, which sadly us religious folks, especially in the modern evangelical side of things have not done a good job with, with art. We've constantly tried to turn it into propaganda. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you do that, you don't have any art left. You know, you've got manipulation and objectification and all kinds of other destructive things. But I think good art just opens space up because it fundamentally trusts the reader or the person who watches uh, can hear for themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
2: think it's, it's hugely respectful. So that's a great compliment and I appreciate it deeply. Thank you.
0: Well, I, you know, I've only written one, one – well, actually two works of fiction if you include a memoir –
2: <laughs> you know <laughs> all history is fiction anyway
0: right yeah that's right you know, people always say yeah all, all novels are are memoirs and all memoirs are fic- are novels but the the thing I love about what you just said about art and about story and fiction is that it's what D- Emily Dickinson said right which is tell all the truth but tell it slant yeah uh, that yeah. idea that don't don't come in the front door where people's uh, critical minds can filter out they're, whatever they're they're already biased against and then secondly uh, she, she hits the end and she said you know uh that the truth must dazzle gradually
2: mm. isn't that I, good it's so good that's so good i um ravi zacharias tells us he's an apologist and he tells the story of malcolm mugridge and mm. mugridge was the editor of punch magazine most of his life was an atheist and and a skeptic and all mm-hmm. that and then had a marvelous encounter with Jesus. So um this I'm telling this because we're in the the aftermath of Billy Graham's Slipping Through the Veil, right? So Billy Graham was coming to London to do a big uh convention and Robbie was in Malcolm's garden and says to Malcolm Muggeridge, "So, you are going to go listen to Billy?" Uh and he says Mugridge is, you know, he's, I don't know, 70 by this time or 60 something. And he says, oh, good chap that Billy. Uh, just not subtle enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the same kind of ideas that Dickinson is using, right? Yeah. And, and add to that Lewis's comment about how Fiction has a way of slipping past our watchful dragons, mm-hmm. which is the same concept. You know, we when we're dealing with somebody's ideas in a nonfiction sort of format and it's argumentative because that's that's what we evangelicals know how to do best. Um, we don't allow it to actually say anything to us. Mm. We're just preparing our counter argument. Where where fiction and this happened with the shack. Uh, um, is uh, a writer, who was it? Uh, President of Denver Seminary Mm -hmm. wrote an article, said, I don't care what kind of uh, Pharisee you are, but didn't you for just a second want to be inside of Papa's embrace when she came out onto the porch? Mm. And, And what he's saying is that art has a way of attacking us through the heart before it gets submerged by the mind. And I think a lot of times in our lives, we have become so rationalistic and intellectually based that we have no capacity for mystery or ambiguity. Mm. And the invitation of art is into mystery and ambiguity as is every relationship.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you've said so much there that I'm sorry. I've had so much coffee because I'm about to jump out of my skin. I'm so excited. Uh, And, and I, the, I'm already getting some clues I mean uh, about your type because I know that y- you are struggling between whether or not you're an Enneagram type nine or seven nines being peacemakers sevens being enthusiasts uh, and so maybe by the end of this interview we can actually this conversation we can we we may actually find out which which of those you are
2: see and I love that see I love being around people who know stuff that I don't you know uh, yeah I it's, mean, me it's too. one of the greatest joys of my life. Yep. And I used to have to know everything and perfectly. Mm. <laughs> it was such a pain and it took up so much energy and uh, to not to not be that, to have that uh, childlike curiosity in my life. Mm. You know, and I have lots of grandkids, so they teach me all the time, which is great. So now. Wow. OK, so.
0: One of the things you just said, and then I want to jump in some Enneagram some, stuff, but I just, I've got to comment on this because it's been so exciting to me. I I, I recently was studying, uh, again, after years, the 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 transcendentals, uh, Aquinas and, uh, of course, earlier, but Aquinas did more work with them, but beauty, truth, and goodness. And just this idea that, you know, um, God is uh, ultimately ultimate truth, ultimate goodness, ultimate beauty. They themselves are a trinity. Uh, You cannot have one without the other, other two. Um, And, uh, you know, up until now, evangelicals, the Protestants in general have relied on truth and goodness as a way of talking about God, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but of course you can always argue about those two things. You can argue about what is good, right, ethics, or you can argue about, uh, what is true right which uh, may be yeah. sermons or theology but you can't really talk uh beauty is not uh beauty is its own defense right it, it yeah uh so it's the only and it's, one. And
2: it's beauty that will save the world
0: yes thank you dostoevsky god bless him mm-hmm. right
2: absolutely oh, he, he had a he had a handle on that
0: he sure did well people know you principally or at least uh, in the early days as the the author of the shack uh, which had such a profound impact on the world uh, I, I'm not sure I know of a book in my lifetime actually a work of fiction for sure that had as I mean oh, I mean, a meteoric sort of you know a seismic effect on the conversation uh, about the nature the person of God about forgiveness uh, and also the maybe the most controversial book I know uh, on those topics, and now most major motion picture Octavia Spencer uh, and uh, was it Sam Worthington is that the other? Yep,
2: right. yep, Sam, and then uh, but the whole cast was fantastic. Mm. Aviva Lush from Tel Aviv, a Jew playing Jesus. I mean, who would have thought about that, right? Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we think it might be the first time, and yeah. and here's here's how my some of my evangelical family uh, approach that whole thing. How dare you make Jesus a Middle Easterner?
0: <laughs> oh, my so gosh. My Why plan. doesn't he have blonde hair and blue eyes? I know, because we've seen
2: him in the movies, right?
0: Yeah. And he could have uh, been Macaulay folks. Culkin. Why didn't you have Macaulay Culkin play Jesus in this movie?
2: Uh, uh, no, could have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of other actors I wouldn't want either. But, uh, yeah, oh, my gosh. Um, but but – and then Sumi, who is a Japanese-Hawaiian, Alisa Braga from Brazil who plays Sophia. Um, Tim McGraw, I thought, was fantastic. Oh boy, uh, Rod Mitchell, also. So, I mean, the cast was, was, and have Graham Greene be Papa as a male. Come on, First mm. Nations person. I thought, oh, the last thing we need is at the end of the movie to have Papa come through the door as a white Gandalf with a attitude. You know.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I
2: just, so I, I want... thought the movie did fantastic.
0: When, when we were away together in in Montana, we had, there was a couple other guys there, and you know we each night, a couple of us shared story uh, about our own stories with each other. Yeah. And uh, your story is particularly important uh, for context. You know, I mean, a lot of times I have people on it and I get data points about their past, but uh, first of all, your, your story is, you, you tell your story so beautifully. It's a dramatic and painful uh, story uh, to hear. Right. Mm. Um, and, um, so for the for context of our conversation, and, and it deserves far longer uh, in terms of time, but if you could just give us, give give our listeners just a 50,000 foot flyby, because I, I mean, they know you as the author of Shack. Sure. I want them to know you just a little bit deeper about your history, and we'll keep jumping right into the Enneagram as we go.
2: Sure. So born Canadian in Grand Prairie, Alberta, uh, my father uh, came from a very dysfunctional destructive background. I mean, he was orphaned at 12. At 14, he ran away from the farm labor that he was uh, put into, and entered the logging camps at 18, had a massive conversion experience with Jesus, walked right into Bible school where he meets my mom, who's already a registered nurse. And so he didn't come into the situation with any kind of a capacity to be a dad, but he had a real heart for God, and he had a real heart for mission. And he's a... He was a hunter-trapper. That's how his dad had trained him, even by 12, so very pioneer-oriented. And um, so I'm a year old. We move across the other side of the world to the highlands of New Guinea into a culture that had never seen a white person before. Um, Twenty to 40,000 members of the tribe over about 100 square miles. And New Guinea has over 800 unrelated language groups. And uh, <sighs> I know it's... a uh, they're looking for the Tower of Babel somewhere in the mm. middle of all that. And uh, But um, uh, warring, Stone Age tribal, spirit worshiping, and I was really the first person in that whole area to know the language. In fact, I was the informant for Wycliffe when I was five years old. Mm. I was also raised Donnie because this is back when missions was uh, the parents do the work of God and somehow God will mysteriously take care of the kids. And so, uh, my generation, many of us were slaughtered on the altar of the mission of God's purpose. And uh, and so it was a so my great sadnesses revolve around three basic things, um, and a, a very difficult relationship with my father, who was uh, just this angry young man who, you know, a generation that didn't know they had baggage, and wouldn't have known what to do with it if they'd have known. Um, my mother, who was very passive in, in the background, but my dad was a, an abusive disciplinarian. Then uh, sexual abuse began in, in the tribal culture for me well before I was five. By the time I was six, I was already really bent, and um, and then at six, uh, yanked out of that culture, put into boarding school on the coast, and uh, um, that was uh, a monumental crisis event, because at six years old, I mean, I'm already trying to figure out what in the world's going on. But now I'm pulled out of my family and my color. You know, I didn't identify with my parents as my parents. Um, The tribal people were the ones that raised me. And then now at six, I'm in a world where the big boys came at night and molested the little boys. And so sexual abuse just, it seemed to be endemic to the world. And, um, And at that point, I lost my color, I lost my, my affiliation with the tribe, a sense of family, a sense of all this belonging. And so belonging was now gone. And for survival purposes, uh, along with my disassociative skills that I'd already adopted, Mm -hmm. um, came performance orientation, that was the way I tried to, I tried to perform my way into the affection, not only of other human beings, but of God. At the same time, is that I was already completely broken um, as a child with no capacity to handle what I was doing, and and that included you know trying to trying to ferret this out through night terrors and all the other ways that that children find a way to express themselves when there is no no capacity or opportunity to. Then we're yanked at ten, and pulled out of that and into dropped into the middle of Canada. Uh, my dad becomes an itinerant pastor. I went to 13 schools before I graduate high school. Uh, it turns out that I'm actually smart and creative, which empowered my ability to hide. So the metaphor of the shack then becomes the house on the inside that people help you build. It becomes a place where a lot of us get stuck, and we want to not go anywhere near it, even though it's our own broken heart and our own broken soul. Creates a you know, for the, as a performer. I created a facade outside the shack that I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. And um, and I did the best that I could. Um, the shack is where I stored my addictions and my secrets and never wanted anybody to ever come in there, not even Kim, who I married. And uh, so she didn't know about my inside world and how broken it was. Um, and I was hoping that if I could just perform well enough, which is perfectly, right? Because uh, perfection becomes the standard. And uh, that maybe that I could finally win the approval and the affection um, of of someone. And uh, so you live from, from moment of kindness to moment of kindness, expecting, you know, uh, someone to penetrate in through your facade. And if that happens, then you If you're religious, you just hear God call you somewhere else. You know, (laughs) you you run. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, you do it in a very religiously sanctimonious sort of way. But um, but I just, I didn't want to deal with it. Then at uh, 38, Kim and I have six children. She catches me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And my whole world blows up. And Mm -hmm. I have to make the decision whether I can find help to change or kill myself, because mm-hmm. suicide had always been a companion, and I think it is for a lot of us who come from my history, um, but it was, you know, it was the last, it always offered the hope of the last way to run away before you actually had to hit the bottom and face your stuff, and to me, it's miraculous that I, I made the decision to face my stuff, and it took Kim and I 11 years to heal, it mm-hmm. took 11 years to dismantle my world and rebuild it, and um, and that included every concept that I had of God, because my view of God was based on the theology and experience that my father had presented. And so I had a very disastrous theology that I think a lot of people have adopted over the last few hundred years. And uh, coupled with the experience of, uh, of the breaking um, in my relationship with my dad and what that meant, and plus, then the, the uh, disassociative power of sexual abuse uh, the fragmenting of the human soul Mm. all of that you know and it's just like cow is there anything is there anything actually that's real Mm. about me at all because you know what are you supposed to do go back to before you're five years old and figure this out right and uh, and you know through therapy uh, my friend Scott Mitchell who became my therapist through um, uh, letting people in, through Kim's fury, and, and let me be very clear, I tell people, I married the wrath of God, thankfully. <laughs> you <know>? But uh, <laughs> part, part of it was the intensity of her fury that saved me. you know, and I think the love of God is the fury of God, opposed to anything that is uh, in the one, that God loves that is incapacitating or destructive. God is opposed to anything that is not of love's kind. And for those of us who wanna hold on to our darkness, that is hell to us. That presence of affection and love, while we wanna hold on to our darkness, that penetration of light into the into the pitch black is painful for us, mm-hmm. And uh, but it is his, his love. And uh, it is that relentless, fiery fury that I feel as a parent toward anything that would hurt the ones that I love, my child or my grandchild. So I know where that fury comes from. And uh, it's the right response to things that are wrong. So, you know, out of that, uh, and there's lots more pieces, as you know, but out of that, Kim is the one who says, you know, someday write something as a gift for our kids, puts in one place how you think because you think outside the box. And the year I turned 50, I finally felt healthy enough to do that. And I'd written all my life, but, you know, gifts for friends and family, poetry and songs and short stories. So I write this thing on the train to one of my three jobs and make 15 copies at Office Depot that do everything I ever wanted that book to do and, and gave it to my kids and my friends got the extras and I went back to work. And who knew? That uh, the kindness of God would allow me finally, in a sense, thankfully not any sooner because I, it would have destroyed me at 30 or 40, but to then participate in something that has been such an an icon and a monument of grace, evidence in my own life that God can take, you know, the brutality of the cross and transform it into something that becomes an icon and a monument of grace, mm-hmm. as it has in life. And um and I don't need it. That's the beautiful thing. You know, my identity is in my relationship with God. My so is my identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love. Right? I don't need a book. I don't need a movie. I don't need any of these things. They're just smoke and mirrors, but the beauty that of the character of God that he climbs into what we bring to the table in order to celebrate us. Mm-hmm. And then allow us to participate in something that we didn't even know the, the, the beauty of what the book has done in the movie and all the other things has been an invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Mm. And let Uh, me tell you that is a, that is a, I am grateful beyond words because every human being is, is holy ground. And if we have eyes to see it and, uh, and I've gotten a huge invitation into a landscape full of holy people that are experiencing the restorative fire of God's affection, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we're surrounded by it. Mm-hmm. If we had eyes to see,
0: you know. Thank you, Paul, for that sort of beautiful praises of your of your story, and I I, I know that people appreciate the heartfelt dimension of it that it it, i've heard you tell it on several occasions now and uh it 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 never feels canned brother which is really saying something given how many years you've you've been asked that question and how many times you tell it and and every time i've seen you tell it you you um exhibit real emotion you know it's not so what that tells me is um well i actually i don't want to say i want to say i want to ask you a question and it is type related. What, where do you go? What, what, what is it that is activated in you? Cause you've told that story a hundred thousand times in interviews and in television, Oprah, you name it, right? Everywhere. What is it that is activated in you that it brings up that emotion and what is it?
2: It's present. It's, it's not a past event, right? I don't disassociate from that history. I am an expression of it. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I think God does is he doesn't deny our brokenness or deny what was done to us or deny our participation in darkness. He takes all of that and by redeeming it, weaves it into the sound that we now become. Mm-hmm. And so that it is present with us in the moment. And, uh, and I can't. I can't disassociate myself from that. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's too precious to lock it into a memory. Mm-hmm. So you know, I carry that with me, and it's not a burden. It's it doesn't exhaust me. Um, it's just is uh, it's just real mm-hmm. in the moment. I was looking up. Uh, I had this quote at the very end of the book. Um, it's by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's the little poem, mm-hmm. and Earth's crammed with heaven,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and every common bush a fire with God. With God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. Yeah, it's a great quote. It's a
0: great, it's a great, great poem. Yeah, that's that. The mystic's vision, right? The capacity to see God in all things, the urgent immediacy of God's uh, presence in and through all things, yeah? So um, when you were 20, because uh, mm-hmm. what I heard what you just said was that your identity prior to this crash, uh, that, that it... It sounded to me like you were saying, "I'm not sure I had an identity uh, or a sense of identity, right? That uh, perhaps an yeah. anxiety that there was nothing behind the facade,
2: right? So, so everything was everything felt like I was faking everybody out, right? So right? when the even, facade even came the down,
0: things. did you you were afraid that there was holy crap, there's nothing here, like like right. I'm I'm actually a uh, fraud, number two. Uh, there's, I'm an empty suit behind this mask. Is that, is that kind of what you were feeling or?
2: Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and I didn't face that until about four months into therapy Mm -hmm. after everything had crashed and burned and Scott had told me that it was coming. You know, he said, everybody bails out right before the really hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I hit the really hard stuff. And when that happened and I was looking into the abyss and going like, what, You know, I don't know if there is one thing that is actually true about me, Mm. you know, because because the overarching thought throughout my whole life was I'm a fake. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a fake. And now I'm facing it. And let me tell you that moment. And that is when my hope left. Mm. And that was the worst moment of my existence. And uh, and it lasted until I made the decision to kill myself. And then everything settled down, you know, and I did. I I planned a trip to Mexico City because maybe the only thing Paul Young could ever do in his entire life was to kill himself far enough away from his family so his kids didn't find his body Mm -hmm. to make sure of that. And um, so that was the plan. But yeah, total. uh, And you know, what I found all these years later is that there was a lot of things that were good and right and beautiful, but... They were so wrapped up into the the dark strands that I couldn't extricate the truth from the darkness. So I didn't know. And uh, that became a point of trust, you know, that there was a seed in there somewhere, even so small, I couldn't see it. Yes. that some grow from.
0: Yes. And in fact, I, I, you know, someone said something to me recently and I just grabbed hold of it, wrote it down and told them I'm using it because it's great for Enneagram work. They said uh, that the, and I'm going to use my terms for it, that the Enneagram helps you uh, get in touch with and reclaim or answer the question, who were you before the world told you who you were supposed
2: to be? Yeah, And, of
0: course, that's what we... What a gift. uh, It sounds like you, but, you know, to get there is painful because what the world told us to be and the ways in which it told us to be that way uh, are, you know, not only they were painful
2: to the point of annihilation. Not only that, we have turned our prisons into our homes. You know, we call our prisons our sanctuaries Mm -hmm. and uh, because it's the certainty of what we know, uh, we think we know. Yep. is what we've been told. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to let go of shame and take the risk of freedom. Freedom feels so irresponsible, you mm. know. And um so yeah, it's annihilating on the one hand, but but the, even the the what seems to be the mirage of freedom is seems so intangible that it becomes almost insurmountable. It's another way to fail. Mm-hmm. And uh and at some point you just get tired of being a failure.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question uh, that I'm not sure if anyone's ever asked you, but if if you would, could you give me two sentences that, in your mind, if you can remember, that you would have included in that suicide note?
2: Oh, great question. (sighs) I, I would have included... I would have included that I, I understand how utterly self-centered this is.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I don't, I don't want, I want to own at least this. I want to own at least this. I don't want anyone else to feel responsible for this choice, mm-hmm. right? Because I wouldn't know, you know, it, suicide is such... A destructive act mm-hmm. not just for the self but the ripple effect of it is profound yes it is. and you know and and in that moment where you're consumed with self-annihilation it is all self-centered right, right. and and it's hard to think about you know what the what the ripple effect of your choices mm-hmm. are but mm-hmm. yeah here's the crazy thing if there's anything that would speak to our unbelievable dignity as human beings whose choices matter it would be the ripple effect from Mm -hmm. self-annihilation you know it's such an irony
1: yes in that sense yeah
2: yeah so
0: you know um one of the things i'm picking up in our conversation here you you mentioned earlier that you, you you think that you're a possibly a nine with a one wing or you're uh possibly a uh, a seven one of the things that complicates this and this is be good for uh our our audience is trauma and the effect of trauma on on personality development and theory uh so i always say having having had a suicidal father an alcoholic father uh um, some similar abuse issues to yours albeit violence and uh all that stuff you know i, I think personality just uh, the defensive nature of the personality thickens it's just thicker on people with trauma the staircase is steeper you know that we have to climb and you know life's unfair sorry people you know you got to play the ball where it drops you know and and so you you have to make peace with that stop asking the question this you're saying you know this isn't fair that that's just a waste of time after a while but one of the things i'm picking up in you that's so interesting is there's a feature of what you're describing that is neither nine or seven possibly mm-hmm the the heart triad, which is twos, threes, and fours, the helpers, the performers, and the achie- or the achievers. Sometimes they're called and fours, the individualists. Which all three operate with a uh, a hidden, unconscious belief. You know that's down. It's like a a line of bad code. You know, and mm-hmm. it, it's corrupting the whole system. Uh, so for twos, it would be uh, you know that in order to be loved. I have to meet the needs of others while at the same time time denying or even acknowledging that I have needs as well. Threes would be, uh, I see a world in which people do not love you uh, for who you are inside, but only for your achievements, your accomplishments, and they have a terrible fear of failure, because they, they they really think, I am what I do, and if I fail, if I don't succeed, if I don't perform well, I'm simply un, uh, unworthy of love and relationship. And then fours, you know, again, fours that have a fear that they are missing some essential uh, piece in their makeup, can't name it, uh, their melancholy, pining for the... As Zenzuk, as Lewis called it, you know that unnameable, that longing for the unnameable, um, and they need to be special and unique. Now, I say all those three because all three of those types share two things in common. One is that they can't be loved for who they are, so they all, th- so all three of them, project images that hmm. they uh, hope facades, personas, whatever we want to call them. Uh, to win the love that they feel they can 't win if they were themselves right right so a little bit of what i 'm hearing in your story is three which is mm-hmm. the their need is the need to succeed at all costs and to avoid or the appearance of success to have the appearance of success and to avoid failure I mean it it, uh, it
2: does that does that resonate with you or to to a point um, okay. when i did when I did the testing part of that, um, threes didn't show up at all mm-hmm. and uh, and what was what was pretty interesting the the thing about it is that I think a lot of that comes from my trauma mm-hmm. and not from what was underlying as far as a basic personality. I think I was a very free child apart from that Mm -hmm. Uh, up you know and i was able to disassociate that part off but then it began to dominate over time Mm -hmm. um the disassociated part so i don't i don't know it's definitely true that the facade and the persona the poser all of that um, and the drive to uh, toward perfection i think for me was fundamentally an expression of the shame that dominated my, my whole world. Yeah. You know? I mean,
0: so twos, threes, and fours are in the shame triad. Now here's why I'm pushing on you a little bit. Cause I think this yeah. is awesome because I, I, uh, I've suffered trauma. I know how it affected my personality development, I think. And and as, as you have, the reason I say this is, and I'm not, I'm, I never type anybody. So I, sure. I I'm just throwing out things for you to consider. And I'll tell you why you're difficult. Threes. When um, they are healthy mm-hmm. start to look like healthy sixes and the way that you describe yourself uh, as um, well I mean I and I've seen you do this in action you your deep care for uh, you don't need to be successful you say now I don't no. need to I don't need this book I don't need this but it sounds to me like a 20 you did I mean, you know what I'm saying, and that's why you're glad today. I you did something,
2: didn't. yep. So right. I, I taught. I did all kinds of stuff at 20. Right, and and I, I was a center of all kinds of attention that way too.
0: And you sought it. Is that correct?
2: Um, I must have because it just happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure.
0: Did you have that instinct as a 20 year old that when you walked, because you said it earlier, when you walked into a room, you said this, I think that you could pick up on the expectations and the values of everybody in the room, and now I'm going to add this to see if it rings with you, and then you were able to shape shift or tweak your projected image in order to win what you perceived or knew would win the admiration of that collective.
2: Yes. I think that's absolutely true. And to put it another way, is that, uh, and this is part of hypervigilance, I think, and that is I could pick up their boundaries so that I could exist within them because I didn't have any myself. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, you know, that's all very three material. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were – here's where you're going to – we're going to get tough, right? So you could be now a very healthy three because the personality can be healthy, unhealthy, or average sure. in the average space. So if you were a healthy three, you'd no longer need that attention. You would no longer hunger for admiration. Twos want appreciation, threes want admiration. I mean, they really want people to be impressed, to recognize them as a success, even in their milieu—not necessarily money. Not you know. So if you were a missionary, you just want to be the known as the best you know missionary that the star missionary in the world it wouldn't it's not all about money or cars or that stuff sure 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 so you you could be a three that now is so healthy that you're at the high side of six and more focused on uh cultivating the success of others to help grow fruit on other people's trees right or you could be a nine who uh in your health goes to the high side of three so it's 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 you know I, i would
2: yeah i would I would guess that I'd be a nine that goes to the high side of three because the admiration thing wasn't that wasn't the deal in fact there is something in me that doesn't doesn't want to be in that spot okay right and uh, that's resisting that resists it I don't like notoriety I don't like platform I don't like smoke and mirrors it's it it clouds the dimension of relationship
0: that's today though what about at 20 yeah at 20
2: I'd have said that every compliment was a new potential to fail, mm. right? Pressure. And so there, yeah. So there was part of that 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 it, it was it was the hand up and the hand beckoning, the hand resisting and the hand beckoning, right? It was um, it was, yeah. I, I am so empty that your little bits of light. That you offer kindness affirmation affection they sustain me even though I don't believe they're true mm. they're not they're not based on you actually knowing me they're based on my performance
0: mm-hmm.
2: right so mm-hmm. so but I, I need them I'm willing to enter into the mythology that it's real even though fundamentally I don't I would just believe that if you knew the secrets, you would not be extending any of these things toward me. Right. So, right. you know, so shame dominated all of that, and I think it clouded everything. So, right. Yeah. All
0: right, Anthony, on a scale of 1 to 10, what 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 was that episode for you?
1: I'd say in the words of Spinal Taps, uh, Nigel eleven it was eleven wasn't it it was eleven yeah the guy's intense right paul young is intense
0: yeah well i can just tell you this um next week's gonna be even better Mm. Yeah, next week, we're actually going to figure out, uh, Lord willing, his his uh, what his what his Enneagram type is, and I think I might know. Awesome, but it's tricky. And I think we're going to have. Is that the music right now? The music's playing, isn't yes. it? Yes. Can I? What is this? The Oscars? Am I? Being, am I? <laughs> hold on a am, I the, am I? Did I just win Best Sound Editing? And I only have like they like they really cut you off if you got... there. You if, go. If you're actually getting a big award, they
1: don't really there chase you, go. you it's go. off. It's getting but, louder. Yeah, it's getting louder.
0: It's getting louder. Okay, everybody, <laughs> listen up. In the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Thank you. We'll see you next week, everybody. We love you.